0: We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. This is an important statement that our church confesses. It comes from the Nicene Creed, which we affirm at our church. And it can also be found in a similar form in the Apostles' Creed, which we agree with in this church. But every time we have recited the creed, almost every time, we have had to stop at the beginning and sort of explain what the word catholic means to us. And what it really meant originally as it has evolved and changed in people's minds over the years. We've explained how the word Catholic actually means universal across the whole world. That it is not, in fact, a reference to a specific church based in Rome, Italy. The universal church or the Catholic church is a reference to all believers everywhere in every age. Everyone who believes all around the world and everyone who has believed in God in the past before us are all part of God's Catholic universal church. And that is why we just sang about the church because today we are going to learn about the church. But we have to distinguish that we're specifically focusing on the Catholic church because in scripture we make a distinguishment between local churches and the universal church. Those are two different senses that the scriptures use the word church. Redeemer Christian Fellowship is a local church. This is a Christian church. You can speak of Redeemer as the church, but it's only a localized version. Obviously, there are lots of people who belong to God's church who do not belong to Redeemer Christian Fellowship. So the local church is a communion of visible, professing Christians, which is why it is sometimes also referred to as the visible church. If you see in a book you're reading local church or visible church, they're talking about the same thing. The local church can be seen, it is visible. The universal church cannot be seen, it is invisible, though one day it will be visible. Now, unfortunately, the local invisible church will always to some degree be a mixture of true Christians and false Christians. But the universal church cannot be penetrated by false believers. So the universal church is all those who are genuinely saved, both today and in the past, and also will include those in the future. And we make these distinctions because the scriptures do, and so today we have the opportunity to learn a little bit more specifically about the apostolic and Catholic church. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. We are finishing out the, chapter, the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. I would invite you when you've gotten there to please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 2:19 through 22 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Paul has concluded his argument, essentially, that he's been making throughout Ephesians chapter 2. His overall argument has been the unification of of Jews and Gentiles into one new Israel, a new constituted body. And here he concludes his arguments by saying this union takes place in the Christian church. It is in God's church, the new Israel, where the unification of the Jew and the Gentile believers is Accomplished, And in order for Paul to explain the nature of this Christian church, he just sort of mashes together a big handful of metaphors for us, all which sort of communicate something a little bit different about the nature of the church. And so we're going to look at the three primary metaphors that Paul uses to describe what the Catholic church is. What is the universal church? And the first one we're going to look at is that the Catholic church is God's kingdom. The church Catholic is God's kingdom. Read the first part of verse 19 with me. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. When the blood of Christ drew the Gentiles near to the Jews, it made everyone... Fellow citizens. It described the Gentiles as being aliens and strangers, but now by faith in Christ, they are no longer aliens and strangers, they are citizens. This is an obvious allusion to Old Testament Israel. God established a theocratic nation state with Israel, and those who were circumcised were citizens of God's kingdom, and the Gentiles were citizens of their own kingdom, so that made them aliens, that made them sojourners, They made them strangers. If a Gentile accidentally crossed the borders of Israel, they would have referred to that person as an illegal alien. An illegal alien who has crossed the border. So, obviously, this is a reference here to God's kingdom. This is kingdom language. Citizenship, alienation. And so, Paul is telling us that the Gentiles who were once strangers to a kingdom are now citizens. They have a citizenship. And we know that we're not talking physical, right? The Gentiles did not have a literal citizenship in the nation of Israel, the physical borders. So this is a spiritual kingdom of God where we find our union. And God's kingdom is where we become citizens. And so the church is God's royal kingdom, it's, it's a new nation, it's the new Jerusalem. In this we see then how the Christian church is actually the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. God set up this theocratic nation state for a purpose and it was supposed to go away. It was supposed to end when the old covenant which created the theocratic nation state ended. So national Israel is gone away. It's no longer God's plan and purpose. It's been fulfilled by the spiritual kingdom. So it is no longer your your job, if you want to worship God rightly, to travel to Israel once a year, maintain some kind of temporary uh, citizenship and go to the temple and worship there. Just as Jesus told the, the Sumerian woman, a day is coming where you can worship God from anywhere. Because his nation is no longer confined to a small chunk of land in the Middle East. It is a spiritual, global nation that you can have citizenship in right now. By the way, this isn't the only time Paul uses this metaphor of citizenship. He says it similar in Philippians 3.20. You don't have to turn there. I actually have it on the screen for you if we can flip to it. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the same metaphor here. You, when you believe in Jesus, you become a citizen of heaven. You become a citizen of a spiritual kingdom which is not of this world, and it is the fulfillment of Israel. And we know that because he says you are now citizens with the saints. You have joined them in this new kingdom. We are citizens in the church, in the kingdom of God, With the saints, which means that we are not just citizens, but we are fellow saints. As he says in 19, we are citizens with the saints. And so you see, the word saint was in the Old Testament, again, only used of Old Testament Israel. Saints was a title for the circumcised Jewish people. And here now, Paul is giving this title to anyone who would believe in Christ, circumcised or not. So you see how we have inherited Old Testament Israel's citizenship. We have inherited their sainthood because the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The church is now the kingdom of God. Not the Middle East. The church. And this does bring up just a, a really quick application. Something that you can apply to your life directly. Now I want to be clear. This is not a huge deal. So I'm not trying to make a, a mountain out of a molehill here. But I would just personally encourage you. To really think deeply about participating in the sainting of famous historical Christians. What I mean by that is it's not uncommon if you're dealing with certain traditions of Christianity to hear people spoken of as Saint so-and-so. Saint Mary, Saint Joseph, Saint Augustine, Saint Thomas. And this is not just a Protestant versus Catholic thing. A lot of Protestant traditions do this. Catholics do this. The Eastern Orthodox. Lots of people do this. So like I said, I'm not not trying to act like it's the worst thing in the world. I'm not trying to be dramatic here. But I personally don't think that that is fitting. What has happened is these institutions which have authoritative bodies have taken Christians from history who have been very influential and very holy and they have sort of constituted them as what they call a canonical saint. Which means it's like they give this stamp of approval over this person and it's your job to try to emulate their faith. And so we have these great Christians throughout history who have now been sainted. And it's Saint Augustine and Saint Thomas, and etc, etc. But I would argue that we ought to recognize, according to Ephesians, the universal sainthood of all of God's people. This does not mean that we cannot greatly appreciate the men and women of history that the Lord has greatly used to direct and preserve the church. That we, should, we absolutely should look into history and thank God for the holy ones who have come before us and try to emulate their faith. So yes, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Augustine and Athanasius and Martin Luther and John Calvin. But I just don't think it's fitting to refer to them as Saint Augustine or Saint Martin Luther or Saint John Calvin for this very reason... That God has made us all saints. It is not just the influential, famous Christians who are saints. Everyone, by the blood of Jesus Christ, becomes a saint. So this application, I would just encourage you. How can you apply this to life? Embrace your sainthood. Embrace it. You are a saint. I, by whatever authority is vested in me, I canonically declare everyone in this room who believes in Jesus a saint in God's church. Embrace your sainthood. Let that encourage you as you live your life every single day, knowing you are a citizen and a saint in the kingdom of God. Because God's church is God's kingdom. But this isn't the only metaphor Paul uses. He uses another metaphor. The Catholic church is not just God's kingdom. The Catholic church is also God's family. God's family. Look at 19 with me again. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul not only calls us members of the church citizens living in God's kingdom, we are children who live in his house. So you can also think of the Christian church as the household of God. In other words, the first metaphor, Paul was reminding us that in the church, God is your king. Now he wants to tell us that in the church, God is not just your king, he's also your father. He is both your king and your father. And we know he's implying the tender fatherhood of God because he describes all who believe in him, Jew or Gentile, as being children who live in his house. Therefore, everyone who can rightfully call God father belongs to his church Catholic. God's house is the Christian church and we know this because of another verse I have on the screen. Paul is even more explicit about this in 1 Timothy 3 he says that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth God's household is his church and by faith in Christ you become a member of his household So everyone who believes in Christ, no matter when they live or where they live, they are children of God. They are brothers and sisters with you and me. And we are all part of God's house, which means we are all part of God's church. One way for you to apply this message of of a family, the idea of the Christian church as being a family where we are brothers and sisters in the household of God, is that you can devote yourself to your local church devote yourself to your local church Uh, and here's why I say that because even though there is a distinction in the bible between the universal church the catholic church and the local visible church nonetheless there is a relationship between them that cannot be and should not be severed the local church is supposed to be an expression a visible expression of the universal church Ideally, we want to welcome all who belong to God's family into our local church. And the way that you enjoy being a family in God is by actually worshiping and spending time with your other brothers and sisters who are in your family. And so the the, the way that there's this connection here is that I'm essentially saying this, Christians have no business being lonely. Christians have no business feeling lonely. Because no matter what may be happening with your friend group or with your biological family, according to the scriptures, you have brothers and sisters all around the world. You ought to be able to go into almost any country in this world and immediately find connection and love and care. And that happens not through the universal church, but through the local church. The local church is where you experience the fellowship of the family that the universal church provides for you. And this is why we pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world, those who are being persecuted. We don't know them by name. I'm sure there's things about them that would irritate me, and I know there are things about me that would irritate them. We have no idea who, we are, who they are, but we love them. They're family. They're members of God's house. You see, we have this incredible spiritual connection with people just based on the blood of Christ alone. And so no matter where we go, if we're faithful to devote ourselves to the local church, we don't have to be alone. We don't have to be lacking community. And so, this is why it's so common for for me to to push and to stress the importance of spending time with the local church on you. It's not to stroke my own ego so that we can just fill the seats so I have more people to preach to. It's not to try to take more money every week. The reason I highly encourage regular faithful attendance to the local church is for your good, it's not about me. It's for you to find community and family, a place of belonging. And that's why that we, this is obviously includes Sundays. I'm, I'm mainly talking about Sundays, but I'm not just talking about Sundays. I'm talking any opportunity you have to be with the people of God. I would encourage you to try to prioritize it. To spend time with your family and really feel that connection as brothers and sisters. And by the way, before we move on, what I'm saying here is actually so important that it's made its way into almost all of the creeds of the ancient church. There are lots of important doctrines that get left out of the creeds because they're trying to be real, real specific. But what we call the communion of the saints where God's saints, where God's people actually commune and live and spend time together, the communion of the saints is in many of the confessions that the churches throughout history have affirmed. For example, in the writing of the Apostles' Creed, which we think is the oldest confession in the history of the church, it says this at the end, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. You see the connection the Apostles' Creed is making? Once a person is part of the Catholic Church, they then need to transition to communing with the visible church, with the local church. Let me also read to you the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I have this on the screen for you Well, It's a long quote. But they have a chapter just dedicated to what is called the communion of the saints. And they have multiple paragraphs on the importance of the communion of the saints. Read with me just the first two paragraphs. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. That's the universal church. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce their mutual good both in the inward and outward man. Now we're talking about the Local church in sharing our spiritual gifts with one another. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. I love the relationship here between the local and the universal church. Anyone who's part of the universal church is welcome to my gifts. If you love Jesus, I'm here to help you. That's what the confession is saying. But it's also recognizing that at the same time, I can't do that. I can't help everyone in the world. So while everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is entitled to my love and my service, the best way I can perform those gifts is by regularly communing with a small body. So you see the importance of the local church as it pertains to the universal church. And so I hope that scripture and history a little bit has made it clear on how important communion with God's people is. And so please keep this in mind in all of our fellowships. Those we gather with are your brothers and sisters, your fellow saints. So reach out to one another in love. Reach out to newcomers and spend time with each other. But don't allow yourself to be alone. Don't allow yourself to feel lonely because you have a family in the household of God. So take advantage of your spiritual bonds. That's a lot for an application. Let's move on to our third metaphor. We've discussed how the church is God's kingdom. The church is God's house. But the one that Paul spends the most amount of time on is that the church is God's temple. The church is God's temple. Let's read verses 20 through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul spends most of his time in this short passage describing the church as a temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the focal point of religious worship. That's where you had to worship God. That's where the sacrifices were offered. And the reason all this is the case is because most importantly, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. The idea was that you can't worship him out in the country because he's not there. He's in the temple. The, the, The key attribute of the temple is that it was where the presence of God dwelt. And so in order to worship God, you had to go to the temple. And even that wasn't enough. You had to have a mediator who... Offered your sacrifices on your behalf for you. You were not allowed in the Holy of Holies, and the Gentiles weren't even allowed to the inner courts. There was all of this separation as they worshiped in the temple. But now we see that the temple, like the rest of the nation of Israel, was a type for a coming spiritual reality, and that is the New Testament Christian church. The reason we don't worship in temples anymore is because we are the temple. You don't need a temple in Israel. That was destroyed in 70 AD and there's a reason in God's providence it has not been rebuilt. The first time the temple was destroyed, in God's providence he rebuilt it because they were still living in a day and age where they needed it. But Rome came and destroyed it for a second time and it has not been rebuilt for 2,000 years. And check the news, it's not coming anytime soon. And you know what we say? Good. Good. There are Christians who believe that one day the temple will be rebuilt in the millennium and then we're going to keep worshiping in the temple in the millennial period. And I tell you, that's just simply not true. The temple had a purpose and it's been fulfilled in you, in you, in me. You're the temple. And and how do we know this? Because notice, look at Paul's language. Let's look at verse 21 in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. As believers come together, we become the pieces that build this holy temple. So you do worship in a temple technically. Every time the church gathers, you're in your temple. We are all pieces of God's Catholic temple. He continues in verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What does that mean, a dwelling place? Again, that's another reference to the temple. The temple in the Old Testament is where God dwelled, but where does he dwell now? Right here. He dwells with us. And this makes sense because there's another Bible passage, I believe in 1 Corinthians, which describes you as an individual temple. Your body is a temple, the Bible says. Because what makes something a temple? It's where the presence of God dwells and the Holy Spirit fills us. So, you are both simultaneously, to use the metaphor, a temple in and of yourself, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And then, when a bunch of Holy Spirit filled believers come together, they create another temple, because if God is in each one of us, then He's certainly in our midst when we gather. So, the whole Catholic Church is being built together into the place, and God says, That's where I live. That's where I dwell. I dwell in those people. I don't need a temple in Jerusalem anymore. I have a new temple. And this one goes across the whole world. It's greater. It's better. This is a temple that the, that the Roman army cannot surround and siege and destroy. It's a better temple. This is a temple where you don't need an earthly mediator because Christ is your mediator. It's better. Trust me, you don't want the Old Testament sacrifices. You don't want them. The church is a superior temple. The church is where God's people dwell. I want us to see, though I don't sense there's a lot of resistance here, I still want us to see that this is a a famous metaphor for the New Testament writer. So keep your marker here, but turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 4 through 10 with me. And Polly, I just have the heading. You can change it over one, but it won't have the text. Thank you. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Speaking of coming to Christ, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the way the whole Old Testament Comes a it comes as a type and shadow for our New Testament life. The in the Old Testament they had a royal priesthood. Now we are the royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, they had to enter into the temple and offer acceptable sacrifices to God through a high priest. And what we do every single Sunday is we come into a spiritual temple and we offer verse five a spiritual sacrifice which is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ our mediator. You see, we're still worshiping exactly the same way as the Old Testament saints, it's just spiritual now. We go to a spiritual temple and offer spiritual sacrifices to a permanent high priest. It's a it's the same system but it's transformed and it's better. But in here we have the same metaphor that Christ is the cornerstone of the temple the foundation of the temple, and we are living stones. We are all each individual stones which make up God's temple, a.k.a. God's church Catholic. We are the dwelling place of God where God dwells, where we worship Him through Jesus Christ. But before we continue, before we conclude, we've, we've seen all three metaphors, but there's, there's one bit that's really important that we've left out. No matter which metaphor you choose to use, Whether you think of, I mean, they're all true in a different way. But when you think of the the church as, as a house or as a temple, the idea is that whatever structure you attribute to it needs a foundation. Something has to give life and strength and stability to this church so that I can confidently say Rome can't destroy it. And that's why Paul tells us that the temple, the nation, the church, God's kingdom, it has a foundation. It's built on something. So let's go back to Ephesians 2 to see what it's built on. Ephesians chapter 2, look at me in verse 20. This new church institution is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the first thing, Paul essentially says we're established on two things, two related things. The first one is the apostles and the prophets. Now, there is some debate as what is meant by prophets in this text. Uh, Some theologians think it's a reference to the Old Testament prophets. Some think it's a reference to the New Testament. I lean towards New Testament, though I don't know for sure. Both are possible. But regardless, the point is being, the same point really comes across. And that is that the church stands or falls on the word of God. Forgive me, I do not know what that is. The church stands or falls according to the word of God. Because that's what apostles and prophets did. They revealed the revelation that God gave. And so we need to understand that this is not a reference to their persons. It's a reference to their office. It's not a reference to the people as much as it is a reference to the doctrine that the people gave us and the reason I say that is first and foremost this was a, these, both of these offices are teaching ministries so what's being implied here is that these people taught us something that the church stands on but another reason we need to understand it's the doctrine not the people is because the people are dead the prophets are all dead the apostles are all dead If the church stands on the prophets and apostles and they're dead, then the church has collapsed. We've lost our foundation. But we're not so much standing on the people, we're standing on their doctrine. So, in other words, what am I saying? What is underneath the Christian church? What's the foundation of the Christian church? It's true doctrine. It's God's theology. In other words, it's the Word of God. Without the Word of God, we do not have a church. We're on a shaky foundation that is bound to collapse. Now we we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. A quick uh, side note to this: this is why in our church we do not believe in the modern the, the uh, which is becoming unfortunately a little bit more common uh, this this notion that there are modern day prophets and apostles that there are people today who are still receiving new revelation from God because the text tells us that the church is resting upon a foundation which has been laid. The foundation has already been laid. Nobody is receiving new public revelation and adding to the foundation. Rather, what we're supposed to do is leave the foundation as God laid it and build on top of it. But we're not called to expand the foundation. We made the joke in Sunday school, it's not our job to look at the foundation and say, you know what, this is a good foundation, but I think we could really use a patio space in the back. Let's lay some, some, some concrete in the back. And you know what? It's a little narrow for my liking. Let's, let's, let's pour some concrete and let's widen this foundation a little bit. That's not our job. The foundation has already been laid. So, this is why if, if someone were to come up to me, some stranger were to walk in while I'm here at the church and say, God spoke to me last night and he told me Redeemer Christian Fellowship needs to start doing X, Y, and Z, I would be polite, I would be loving, but I wouldn't believe him. I don't need a word from God. I have it. I've got 20 of them in my office I don't need any more. The foundation has been laid. So I don't know what voice that guy's hearing, but it's not a voice I need to be listening to. I have the prophets and apostles. I have the prophecy. I have the apostolic teaching. And that's the foundation of the church, not the voice you're hearing in your head at night. What you think you're hearing is not the foundation of the church. The prophets and apostles who lived 2,000 years ago, that's the foundation of the church. We believe that prophecy in the apostolic ministry, that that foundation has been set, and now the church can start building. If all we do is keep adding to the foundation, we can't actually build the church. But because God has laid the foundation, now our duty is to build on top of it, to build up the church on their teaching, which is why we confess not just one holy Catholic church, one holy Catholic apostolic church, Because that's a reference. It's primarily the teaching of the apostles that stands underneath the Christian church. We want to know whether our doctrine is in line with the apostles. That's the key to a New Testament church. And another reason this is important is not just for the modern day new prophecies. But it's also important for a more ancient controversy. There's this controversy known in the church as apostolic succession. And there's a view among many groups that your church is not a valid church unless you have a bishop that oversees the pastors of your church and that that bishop, whoever ordained that bishop, uh, that person who ordained him had to have been ordained by someone and that goes all the way back to the apostles. So the idea is that you do not have a valid church unless someone who the apostles ordained and then someone that they ordained and then that ordination can be traced to the ordination of your bishop. And there are lots, there are millions of people around the world who would tell you, you don't go to a church, you go to a cult. Because your pastor does not have apostolic succession. My ordination does not come from the lineage of the apostles. And they would tell you that anyone I've baptized and that every sacrament we do are all invalid because we're not a true church, because true churches are united to the apostolic bishops. And one of the reasons why we would reject that notion is because according to Ephesians 2, the foundation of a church is not lineage, it's doctrine. Our church, the authenticity of our church, is not established by who I know. (laughs) It's not established by who approves of me. It's established on whether or not we teach what the apostles taught. What makes or breaks our sacraments is the gospel that we profess, not the people who ordained me. Why? Because ordination is not the foundation of the church. Theology, true doctrine, is the foundation of the church. I want you to be really convinced of this. Keep your marker here. Turn to the book of Galatians. Just turn back one book. Galatians chapter 1. And Paulie, I also have just the, the title of this on here. Galatians chapter 1, look at verses 6 through 9 with me. Paul tells the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Do you see how vital the gospel, not authority, is to the establishment of the church? My ordination could come from the archangel Michael, for goodness sake. Michael himself could rip the ceiling off this place, lay his hands on me and ordain me, and the moment I preach a false gospel, you look at me and you kick me out. We are not established on authority here. Notice, Paul includes himself in this. Even if we or someone else should preach a contrary, Paul himself could give his stamp of approval on me. But if what I teach is not consistent with the doctrine that has been once for all delivered to the saints, then his ordination doesn't matter. The church is not established on authority, lineage, genealogy. It's established on the prophets and the apostles. Are you preaching and teaching the word of God? That's what matters. That's what creates a church. And so this leads to a very easy application for us we need to devote ourselves to the teaching of the word. You see how important the scriptures are to the life of the church? Because the scriptures is our only reliable access to the prophecy and the apostles of the first century. And the entire church is established on this word of God. As a matter of fact, uh, this is one of the reasons why in the Reformation they, they tried to make the pulpit sort of the center of worship. And even today, many, many people from other traditions will criticize uh, Reformed churches because The Eucharist is not the most important thing we do, but but the preaching of the Word is. But the Reformers argued that there's an important logic to this, that there is a sense in which the preaching of the Word of God is the primary thing that we do in church, and here's why. First and foremost, just put it simply, Paul never tells us anywhere that uh, the church is established on the foundation of the Eucharist. He says we're established on the prophets and apostles in Ephesians 2. He says we're established on Christ, a foundation laid by the prophets and apostles in 1 Corinthians 3. He never says the Eucharist is the foundation of the church. It's the word of God that's the foundation of the church. But even more to that, the Eucharist is very important. Believe me, the Lord's Supper is extremely important. That's why we do it every single week in this church. But let me ask you this. How do you even know what the Lord's Supper is? What's the difference between the wine you drink in here and just normal wine? How do you know when you're not just eating bread and drinking wine? Like if we fellowship today at Pollock and we have bread and wine, did we have a second communion? I don't know. How do we know? How do you know the difference between a baptism and a bath? What defines that? God's word. God tells us. So this is why baptism and the Eucharist is important as they are. They still can't be foundational because we need the word of God to even know to do them and what they mean and why we do them. The word of God is underneath everything we do. The songs we sang today, are they appropriate? Do they please God? I don't know. Check the word. Should we do a call to worship? Is a call to worship necessary? I don't know. Check the word. Should you be listening to your pastor? Check the word. You see how it's underneath everything? It's the foundation of the church. It is the word of God which has created the church. But the word of God is not alone in holding the church together. As Paul says, turn back to Ephesians with me. He doesn't just say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the apostolic doctrine, but that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The church is founded on a combination of the Word of God, Oral, and the Word of God, the Lagos, the Son. Jesus and the Word of God come together to give the church an unshakable foundation and Christ himself is the most important part. That's why he is called the cornerstone. You see, uh, I hear a lot of stuff about what a cornerstone is in evangelicalism. And it's a lot of times, at least according to my studies, it's not actually true. Um, But the basic gist of a cornerstone, as they did architectural buildings in the first century, was that you usually had one stone that was the primary weight-bearing stone. This stone was architecturally designed to bear a huge portion of the weight of the building. So that if you were to remove this stone, the whole building would collapse. Now, some say that it has to be a foundation, but that's not actually true. It could actually be like an arch. So it's not always in the foundation necessarily, but it could be. But just depending on how they designed the building, you have a cornerstone, which is the weight-bearing stone. And it really is. It's the most important stone in the entire building. And that's the metaphor. Paul is saying the most important piece to the establishment of the Christian church is Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have church. There's nothing. It just ruins. It just rambles. It just stones on the ground. But Jesus Christ, with the word of God, provides a sure foundation for the Christian church to be built. So let's summarize and put this all together. The church of Jesus Christ consists of his subjects, his children, and his worshipers. Those who make up the church are those who obey God who have been united to him through Jesus and who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are God's citizens. They are God's children. They are God's dwelling place. And this is why we conclude that the Catholic Church is not a visible institution. It is not a physical structure or a single denomination. Your membership in the Catholic Church is not based upon having the right bishop or being baptized in the right building. The Catholic Church is not a pretty Luxurious building sitting in Rome. It is the full number of God's elect. It is all believers in every generation. Whereas the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Your membership in God's church is established by faith in Jesus Christ, believing in the Word of God and being filled by His Spirit. And this is why we do not limit the Christian church to any one denomination here at Redeemer. All those united to Christ by faith and filled with the Holy Spirit belong to God's family, which means we are happy to call them brothers and sisters.